Hey friends, Tyler here with a special announcement for pastors and ministry leaders. On May 7th and 8th, Bridgetown Church will be hosting a pastor's gathering for ministry leaders and other pastors uh, around the theme of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a postmodern context. We're going to tackle themes like listening prayer and prophetic ministry, creating a culture of response and encounter. And we want to do so among like-minded leaders ministering in a similar context who are going after the same things. So if that's you and that sounds interesting to you, Come and join us on May 7th and 8th. Registration is live right now, and you can find more information at, at the website that is dedicated to this, bridgetown.church training. Hope to see you in May. Uh, Romans 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Natalie. Good morning, everybody. If you're new or visiting, my name is John Mark. It is, my heart is so full of joy to be with you two weeks in a row. My family's all here. In theory, I have a son in the balcony. I don't know. I don't know if I want to know what's up. (laughs) We spent an evening this week working on a Gen Z translation to millennial piece for the internet. Watch your feed. It's going to be lit. Finna do it. Um, anyway, <laughs> some of them are intuitive. Some are like, Finna? I am going to. All right? It's great to be with you. Uh, our heart is so full of gratitude for you and what the Spirit of Jesus is at work to in you. Before we start, three things I love about you. One, I love the way that you as a community exemplify what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and in particular, kindness. You are such a kind people. Our city has been, as we all know, on a very different trajectory for a while now than the one set down by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And with each passing year, that cultural gap between the culture of Portland and the culture of the way of Jesus is wider and wider. And I don't mean that in an us versus them, culture war kind of way, just in an honest assessment. When you walk through the door into this community, you step into a whole new cultural ecosystem. And that's as it should be. In biblical theology, the church is, Jesus called it a city on a hill. It's like a city within a city, a community within a community, a culture, a counterculture within a wider one. And you just model that so well, but in particular, in your kindness. Secondly, I love your hunger for Jesus. It's just palpable in the room, your desire to follow Jesus and apprentice under him together and let him form you into a person of the fruit of the Spirit. And you can't fake that. I mean, you can try. Good luck with that one. 
Um, you can't fake it, and the best of leadership cannot visioneer it or organize it or put it into a five-year plan. That is you saying yes to what the spirit of Jesus is saying yes to in you. So well done. And last, I so love your leaders. It has been a delight to be with the leaders, with the elders. We had a great dinner a few nights ago with the elders, and it was just like, oh, happy, sad. Sad to be gone, but so happy to be back. And in particular, I love your lead pastor. I don't think he's in the room, but let me just honor him. He is such a gift. Not only is he a world-class preacher and gifted and strategic and painfully good-looking, it is so not fair. <laughs> so that beard, the scraggly, like, millennial Patrick Swayze thing, it's just, I still can't grow a beard. I'm 42. I even fell for like a terrible Instagram ad, and I've preached sermons against Instagram ads, but still, I spent like, some Norwegian dude with an amazing beard and essential oils, and $80 later, I still can't grow a beard. <laughs> and like a painful micro thing, it was so painful for three months. Nothing. Anyway, not only is Tyler all of that and more, but he is such a deep well of life in Jesus. Please pray for him. You know, G.K. Chesterton said, it is the paradox of history that each generation is converted by the saints that contradict it the most. And that's very true of your leader, and it's very true of you. So bless you guys, it is a delight to be back. That said, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter three. 2 Corinthians chapter three, again Romans 12 is kind of our meta-level text, but in a few minutes the plan is to explore 2 Corinthians chapter three. Um, last week I led off with Nietzsche I've not been preaching, and I'm a bit rusty. I'm sorry. So let's try again. Selena Gomez <laughs> titled her recent documentary for Apple TV, My Mind and Me. In it, she explores her ongoing struggle with anxiety, depression, her time spent in a clinic, and her diagnosis with bipolar. She opens the doc by saying, everything I've ever wished for, I've had and done all of it, but it has killed me because there's always Selena. Later in the film, which I may or may not have watched, it's a mystery, she says, I feel trapped in my own mind. Billie Eilish has long been open about her mental health, in an interview with Zane Lowe, she said, depression has controlled sort of like everything in my life. Songs about being depressed or suicidal or completely just against yourself, some adults think that's bad, but I feel that seeing someone else feels just as horrible as you do is a comfort. It's a good feeling. Simone Biles, arguably the greatest gymnast of all time, made waves across the world in 2020 when she pulled out of the Tokyo Olympics in light of her mental health. She has not since returned to competition. A defining feature of our time, and of Gen Z in particular, is mental illness. About 30% of people between the ages of 18 and 25 report a diagnosis of mental illness over the last year. Mental illness is, of course, not new in the history of humanity, but the proliferation is new from the fringe to the center. And a growing number of experts, as you are likely aware, are all saying this is not a random chance. It was caused by all sorts of factors, at a metaphysical kind of high level by secularism itself, 
Research by social scientists has now demonstrated that as a general rule, the more secular and a particular progressive a person becomes, the more neurotic they become. As rates of secularism and liberalism rise, so do rates of anxiety, depression, and even mental illness. Not for all people, we're talking bell curve population dispersions here, but for many people, the vast majority. Human beings cannot live without meaning. And secularism has no inherent meaning or purpose to life beyond maximize pleasure, minimize pain, and propagate the species. So we can come up with a meaning, which pretty much all humans do, but it's just not the same. Food and pleasure and survival and the propagation of the species is enough for the animals. It is not enough for human beings. It is not enough for the soul. Secondly, by social factors, things like widespread divorce, the breakdown of the family, its impact on trauma, attachment disorder, hookup culture, the legalization of drugs, and so on and so forth. And then by technological factors, in particular by social media. In 2017, Jean Twenge made waves with her article in The Atlantic, Have Smartphones Ruined a Generation? She is a psychologist who studies the differences between generations, and she points to 2012 as the key inflection point between millennials, my generation, and my kids, Gen Z. In 2012, all sorts of mental health markers spike, including loneliness, anxiety, depression, and a lot more ominous ones. 2012 was the year that the number of Americans with smartphones passed 50%. Since then, rates of mental illness and suicide have skyrocketed into the worst mental health crisis in a very long time. My hope is that future generations look back on us, on TikTok and Instagram and you know, our news app, the way we look back on people in the 1940s just chain-smoking their way through every room. <laughs> cool, but not all that wise. But for now, we are very far from Paul's claim. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And while that statement, that's a statement, it's not a command, it's not a go do it, it's a statement of reality, is very true. We, as followers of Jesus, have access to the inner mind of Christ himself, as Paul writes in the New Testament. We have the mind of Christ. Yet, as followers of Jesus, we are not immune to the sweeping generational cross-currents. We have phones, many of you likely have social media. You could reconsider that, but you likely have it. We live in a city, we are surrounded by secular progressive culture and inundated with ideology. Just being back for a week, I mean, you cannot walk a block in this city without an ideological assault that is at war with your soul and is in direct contradiction to Jesus' vision of reality. You cannot walk 10 feet here without it. Even if we refuse to participate, we are still like a non-smoker sitting in a restaurant in 1945. We're just breathing it all in secondhand. But don't worry, there is good news. There is gospel of Jesus. We left off last week with Paul's concept of the renewal of the mind from Romans 12. Uh, just a quick recap. One, we define the mind as directed attention said it's not the same thing, at least in our use, as the brain. It is this arguably immaterial part of your inner person that has the capacity to choose what you think about or what you do not think about. Secondly, we also said that both neuroscience and Christian spirituality align around the claim that you can use your mind to change your brain. 
You can use your directed attention, what you choose to think about, to rewire your nervous system and the neurobiology of your body itself to become more like Jesus. And three, we said this renewal of the mind is not an event, but a lifelong process of apprenticeship to Jesus. This week, I wanna shift gears with you to a kind of from 30,000 feet to a more pragmatic level. How do we do this? Gave you a brief synopsis last week and said we fill our mind with the person and gospel and teachings of Jesus the Christ. Let's drill down on that synopsis. First, what we talk about when we talk about contemplation, with a mind, when we talk about a mind filled with Christ, is called contemplation in the Christian tradition. Now, this word, of course, means different things to different followers of Jesus at different times and places in history. I mean it in a high-level, non-technical sense of filling your mind with Christ, turning your attention to Christ, looking at Christ, looking at you in love. The word itself comes from right here, if your Bible is open, in the New Testament, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Take a look. Let's pick up in verse 16. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now look closely at verse 18. And we all, all of us, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There's our word. The word that's translated contemplate in your English Bible is katotrizo in Greek. Can you say that? There you go. Just making sure you're awake. Doesn't help you at all to know the Greek word. It's just a little, like, keep you alive, all right? One lexicon defines it as to see as in a mirror by reflection, another as to mere gaze. So there, there are two pop possible interpretations of the Greek and of what Paul is trying to say here. The first one is that it means to gaze at, to look on God's glory. Now glory in the New Testament does not mean fame or credit as in like the country music awards where it's like you write a song about a one night stand and you get up and glory to God. <laughs> Which God? Um, it means, it's not that. It means for the beauty, it is a little ironic, you have to admit. It means the beauty of, I secretly love country music. <laughs> Shania Twain, just it goes, it's a thing. Edit this out, please, of the podcast, thank you. <laughs> Glory means the beauty of God's presence and goodness as manifested in some kind of a physical way. So in the Old Testament story, God's glory is in the cloud over Mount Sinai and then the tabernacle and then the temple. It's in, a, it's in the manifestation of a cloud. In the New Testament, it's in the person of Jesus, the incarnation of God into the world. So one option is, it just means, Paul just means to gaze on the beauty of God in Jesus. But as in a mirror, meaning we don't see God face to face, we see kind of this, kind of reflection or refraction of God. Another interpretation is that Paul means we are the mirror. We reflect and refract God's glory or his beauty back to God and to the watching world. You see that in the NIV's footnote with an alternative translation of reflect. 
which interpretation is right? Well, most scholars argue that it's a both and, that Paul is likely here doing an example of double entendre. The New Living Translation captures this both and meaning, so all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord, and the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Also, here's the message. Nothing between us and God, our faces shining with the brightness of his face. And so we are transfigured, much like the Messiah, our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. Paul seems to be saying that as we contemplate as we look at and gaze at the Lord's glory, his beauty and presence and goodness in Christ, we, it does something to us and through us, we are transformed. That word transformed is metamorpho in Greek. It's where we get the English word metamorphos, the word for the transformation from a caterpillar into a butterfly. It means a profound change in the essential nature of a living being. Ancient disciples of Jesus, like Paul, were saying what all of the best neuroscientists in the world are now all saying in unison, we become like what we think about. Put another way, what you think is who you become, for better or for worse. As the Singaporean writer Hui Tan put it, you are what your mind looks at, you are what you contemplate. What you direct your attention to What you allow to come in and out of your mind stream will determine the trajectory of your spiritual formation. It will decide who you become. If you look at God, Paul is saying, you will become like God. So neuroscientist I follow named Andrew Newberg, who's not a Christian, but very friendly. I I would imagine it's only a matter of time. And... um, (laughs) He has written extensively about the effect of prayer and Christian theology on the brain. In his book, How God Changes Your Brain, he explains a lot of the science behind contemplative prayer. As I understand it, and this is my stupid person version, forgive me, any neuroscientists in the room, don't email me. Um, Our mere neurons, our mere neurons cause us to mirror whoever or whatever we look at, which is why when somebody smiles at you as a general rule, smile back, right? Whether you are in a good mood or not, it's just, you kind of do it. If somebody yawns, what do you do? You yawn. If somebody is like angry, you may get angry or you may get scared or you may run away. If somebody is happy and relaxed, you may feel your nervous system kind of lighten up and breathe. That's why I love Gerald. It's just, it does, mirror neurons. <laughs> let them work. If I can't be happy, let, me, let my mirror neurons do their thing around Gerald and Bethany, all right? The same thing happens when we look at God. He writes, if you contemplate God long enough, something surprising happens in the brain. Neural functioning begins to change. Evolution, or God, or both, gave us a nervous system that actively participates in its own neural construction. Love that idea. Something we do not see in other animal brains. Basically, there is this little part of our brain called the anterior cingulate that sits between our limbic and prefrontal structure. When it's stimulated, it decreases our impulses of anger and fear and increases our feelings of compassion and love. When we contemplate God and his love, 
coming toward us in Christ by the Spirit. It stimulates this part of our brain. And he writes, quote, it appears to strengthen the same neurological circuits that allow us to feel compassion toward others. Tragically, the opposite is true. He writes about how if you have a a vision of God that is not in keeping with Christian theology, but more of a God who is angry or a tyrant in the sky, it has the opposite effect on your brain. It stimulates feelings of anger and anxiety, and you end up with symptoms similar to PTSD. That's why it's incredibly important that we think Christianly, Christianly about who God is and who God isn't. Very simply, as we think on the love of God coming toward us in Christ by the Spirit, it literally changes our brain and makes us into more compassionate and loving people. As we look at Jesus, we become more like Jesus. This is not rocket science. Hence, all the commands in the New Testament to turn your mind to Jesus. Philippians 2, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. We read Romans 12, be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. Or I love Romans 8, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Or the verse my dad made me memorize when I was in grade school, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, read this with me. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That can be translated, meditate on such things. Think deeply and slowly on such things. Notice that list is basically the opposite of all things internet. It's the opposite of the New York Times. It's the opposite of any social media feed, especially Twitter. It's the opposite, it's just the opposite. Think, meditate on such things. That's just a sampling. A cursory read of the New Testament will lead you to one inevitable conclusion. Thinking well is one of the core practices of the way of Jesus. Nowhere do we see this more clearly than in the teachings of Jesus himself. I think of John chapter 15, which is, which is Jesus' most in-depth teaching on spiritual formation, on the process by which we are transformed to become more like him. His guiding metaphor, and man, metaphors matter. We all live for metaphors, so pick your metaphors carefully. His guiding metaphor is of a branch abiding in a vine. We are the branch, he is the vine. How do we, quote, bear much fruit in his language? We abide, or another translation is we remain. The word means to make our home in, to rest in a living, relational connection to God. Of course, this begs the question, okay, how? Beautiful metaphor, what's the pragmatics of it? Well, we get a hint in verse seven. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, You will ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, his beauty, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Jesus is saying, how do we do this? We make space for his word to find a home deep in our mind and our inner being. Now, what is a word? 
A word is a verbal bearer of a unit of thought. A word is the carrier of a thought or an idea or an image or a picture in your mind's eye or a perception or a memory that comes into your field of awareness or what we would call your consciousness. Jesus is calling on you and me as his apprentices to curate our consciousness, to think very carefully about what we think about, what we allow to flow in and out of our mind, and to bring our mind or our directed attention back to him and his word, and I just mean scripture, it's a beautiful example of it, his word, his thoughts, his ideas, his images, his perceptions of reality, to bring our mind back to him and his word all through the day, to let it become, let our mind and our body become a home for his word and his presence. As we do this, as we become a home, we will, quote, bear much fruit. And over time, you and I, the apprentice, will become like the master. Now, how do we do this? Well, there are two basic practices from the way of Jesus that I and many others find very helpful with the end goal of the renewal of the mind. They are called watchfulness and meditation. They do not alliterate because I did not make them up. They go back very long, very long time. Think of your mind as a garden. It may be my Airbnb is right next to a very Portland garden. It, it may be bursting or about to be bursting in spring with flowers and fruit and a somewhat orderly explosion of life. Or it may be chaotic, full of dead growth, wild and overgrown with thorns and thistles that are choking out its original intention. Either way, if you're a gardener, you have two basic jobs, right? Tend the plants, keep out the weeds. Put certain things in, good soil, nutrients, water, sun, and keep certain things out. Noxious weeds, bugs, disease, predators, children, all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> that was a joke, that was a joke, all right. It's similar to the curation of consciousness. Put certain things in, keep other things out. Watchfulness is on the put certain things in, on the keep certain things out side, it's on the negative side. Meditation is more on the positive side. One is about what you don't want in, one is about what you do want in. A short word on each. First off, watchfulness. This is a word that's used regularly by Paul in the New Testament. One example would be Colossians 4. Devote yourself to prayer being watchful. Watchful, what does it mean by that? And thankful. It was especially emphasized by the desert fathers and mothers of the third century and beyond. In fact, early on, they were called the watchful fathers and mothers, or another English translation is the wakeful fathers and mothers. This word watchful or wakeful um, that they used was nepsis in Greek, and it literally means sobriety or wakefulness. It is the opposite of a state of drugged or alcoholic stupor. It has two basic meanings. The first is just to be fully present to wherever you are, the here and now, in order to be fully present to God. Kind of like an early Christian form of mindfulness, but more relational and prayerful. Meaning your mind is not in the past, 
in regret or recrimination or hurt or what happened to you or anger or bitter, nor is it in the future in fear or fantasy or worry or whatever. It's not doom scrolling on your phone or just endless scrolling of you know, news articles. It's fully alert and awake to God in the now. But the second dimension of watchfulness is this imperative to kind of watch over, to guard, to police and protect your mind, your conscious awareness from the entrance of thoughts that are not of God. One lexicon defined the word this way, to be in a continuous state of readiness to learn of any future danger, need, or error, and to respond appropriately, to pay attention to, to keep on the lookout for, to be alert for, to be on one's guard against. Now, later in antiquity or church history, the church developed this paradigm of the seven deadly sins. I'm sure you're somewhat kind of sort of familiar with that and can name a few. They were based on a third century writing from a desert father named Evagrius. I've said something about him before. In his original work, though, he did not call it the seven deadly sins. This is a bit confusing. He called it the eight deadly because they later collapsed his last two because they were pride and vainglory. And later thinkers kind of said that's very similar. So eight became seven. But he did not call them the eight deadly sins. He called them the eight deadly thoughts. Because Evagrius and all the fathers and mothers pointed out that sin, the vast majority of the time, starts as a thought in your mind. And if you can win the battle there, the moment that thought comes in, ideally for the first time, if you can win it there in your mind before it gets into your heart and your body, before it becomes what they called a passion, an emotionally charged habit in your body's central nervous system, what some doctors today would call an automatic response, if you can stop it before it ever goes anywhere close to that deep, if you can guard your inner person as, as your sanctum, as your holy of holies in the temple, in the dwelling place of God, if you can stop it at the door, man, you save yourself so much pain later on. As you can imagine, they put a very high premium on the curation of consciousness. I mean, you read them, they are highly sophisticated thinkers. Let me give you a few examples. Evagrius Ponticus himself said, be the doorkeeper of your heart. Like imagine you're the person at the door. You're like, your decision is who do I let in or not. And do not let any thought come in without questioning it. Question each thought individually. Are you on our side or the side of our foes? And if it is one of ours, Here's how you know. It will fill you with tranquility. They all made the point. You know, they were alert to what scientists now would call pre-verbal thought and that the distinction between a thought and an emotion is somewhat arbitrary. So they would discern a thought's origin point in particular by the feeling that it was attendant to. So if it came with a feeling of anger or contempt or judgment or fear or anxiety, they would say that thought is likely not of the Spirit of God. If it is, it will fill you with tranquility. Saint Seraphim writes, the mind of an attentive person, we are not all attentive, the mind of an attentive person is the sentry, the sleepless guardian placed over the inner Jerusalem. I love this like image of the sentry. Imagine this is the ancient world, walls around a city, a sentry walking around the village or the city there to guard against enemy intrusion and violence and death. 
That is the role of your mind to guard your life from the intrusion of the evil one, to stand watch against demonic thoughts. One of the anonymous desert fathers uh, used this analogy. This is in an ancient book called The Saying of the Desert Fathers. An old man said to a brother, the devil is the enemy and you yourself are the house. The enemy never stops throwing all that he finds into your house, pouring all sorts of impurities over it. It is your part not to neglect throwing them outside again. If you do not do this, the house will be filled with all sorts of impurities and you will no longer be able to get inside. But all that the other begins to throw in, you should throw out again, little by little, and by the grace of Christ, your house will remain pure. Like, this is not like a pick-me-up kind of idea, but it's some spiritual realism as we write. Does your mind ever just feel like somebody is out just flinging poo at you all of the time? <laughs> just throwing garbage into your mind, just tossing toxicity and anger and evil and pride and lust and discontentment and I want that new car and like all of this stuff into you. Are you just gonna take it? Or are we gonna develop the discipline of throwing it back out? Throwing it back out, throwing it back out. Is it exhausting? Yes. Is it worth it? Absolutely. St. Theophon the Recluse, I have to quote him just because someday I want to die and have a name like that. <laughs> Stand at the door of the heart and watch carefully everything that enters or goes out from there. Now, watchfulness. Um, there's like a mental ninja kind of application of this practice that I'll be honest, is very hard. Where you think about what you think about and you watch increasingly as you age and mature what comes in and out of your mind and you say yes or no and you curate your consciousness as an act of discipleship. That's where we're going, that's the end goal. It's very hard, okay? That, that is very possible, that is with, within your reach as an apprentice of Jesus but it will likely take you decades of fidelity to prayer and to the life of Jesus. There's also a kind of bit more of a beginner entry point that's a bit more pragmatic kind of an application and a much easier place to start that's more within the range of your willpower and mine, where you discipline what you allow through your five senses, in particular your eyes and your ears thinking all week about this children's song I grew up in. Those of you that did not come to church will have no idea what I'm about to do, but remember that song? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what they see. Did they not have it in Nigeria? The Nigerians are like, you grew up in church. You normally know all the kids' songs. That's one of our best ones. You've probably exported the terror of Americans. We just export the worst stuff. I'm so sorry. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you... No, I'm just kidding. Going back. <laughs> it's amazing. I've been volunteering in the, church, in the children's ministry at our church right now, so I'm just regressing in my maturity, you know? Incarnational love. No. But I've been thinking about that line, the wisdom of it. And you know, often stuff gets a bad rap, but it's, it's the father up above is looking down in love. 
not in wrath to smite you for a dirty thought, in love because of the utmost of importance, what you see, what you hear, what you allow in to the temple of your body. It's unsophisticated, but it's true. My parents used to say to me when I was growing up, John Mark, garbage in, garbage out. That is a very old school way of saying, Andrew Newberg, the mind actively participates in its own neural construction. (laughs) Same exact idea. One is much easier to remember. We are fools if we think that we can sit down in front of our TV or open our phone or our web browser or walk down the street and fill our mind with violence, revenge, lust, sexuality or full-on sex, obscenities, coarse joking, blasphemy, indifference at best or hatred of God, antipathy toward the way of Jesus, and think that after hours of that, not only week after week, sometimes day after day, not let that form us into a particular kind of person. Become like what you think about. What you think is who you become, for better or for worse. You can look at HBL, or you can look at TikTok, or you can look at Jesus. Be careful, little eyes. There is a sobriety to it. I don't mean that some heavy-handed, legalistic kind of way. I have a theology of the arts and blah, blah, blah. But Christians justify a lot of things under the category of art that is just intelligent pornography and much more. You become like what you think about. So a great place to start is just to begin to take a serious appraisal of your experience of the digital life, of entertainment. A really easy, pragmatic way to do this, that I do this every single year, is to do a 30-day digital detox. Just kind of delete everything, but especially social media. Delete your news apps. Attempt to use the internet only if you have to for work. I tend to do it on my annual summer vacation when I don't need it hardly for anything. And just use it for bare minimum, whatever. And then just, and if you can, cut out TV and film. And just have it, like, it's a cleanse. Not just for your nervous system. It's great for that. But it's a cleanse for your soul. And then think of it like an elimination diet. Then you add back in. A little like, okay, indie film, that wasn't bad. Oh, TikTok, oh, I had an allergic reaction. (laughs) Guess that one should not be in my diet, whatever it is. Again, this is some of this stuff is pragmatic. I know it's not cool, but if you just stay at the conceptual level, we limit the effect of the teachings of Jesus on our overall life. We're human, we live at a conceptual level and we live at what are you gonna do this afternoon? And what am I gonna do tonight when I get home from preaching and I'm wicked tired? What am I gonna do? Where am I, where's my mind gonna go? Where's my heart? I have to think about something. So, first, watchfulness. Now, that leads me to my second point. I have seven minutes, here we go. The problem is, the mind can't not think. It's not enough to say, don't think about the bad. If I say, imagine Gerald in a pink blazer's tank top. No, if I say, don't imagine him in a pink blazer's tank top. What are you all thinking about right now? (laughs) 
Gerald in a pink blazer's tank top, right? That is how the mind is. There's a saying in the psychological literature, the mind unaided tends toward chaos. Meaning, when you don't have something good to focus on or anything to focus on, the mind, as a general rule, tends not to calm into tranquility, but range all over the place into chaos. Fear, worry, regret, anger, painful memories, hurt feelings, fantasy, sexuality, and more. If you've read Ching Sent Mihai's important work on what he called flow, he said the opposite of flow, which is when you're just so fully present to a moment, something good, beautiful, a film, work is where most people experience flow. If you're so deeply, you lose track of time and you feel this surge of happiness. He said the opposite of flow is not boredom or even sadness, it's anxiety. So you have to give your mind something else to think about. Again, this is where the best of neuroscience and ancient Christian spirituality are on the exact same page. The pathway forward is thought replacement. Evagrius that I mentioned in his, that idea of the seven deadly thoughts comes from his treatise, a book that he wrote that he called Talking Back, where I identified these, these eight chapters and these eight deadly thoughts. And then if you read it, it's not really a book, it's a handbook. And under each chapter are like subcategories, examples of thoughts around envy or gluttony or acedia or whatever. And he identified the lies that would come into him and other monks' minds, fellow monks' minds, that he identified as a demonic kind of thought process coming at him. And then he would write down a corresponding scripture to, to combat the lie with truth so that every time that thought would, this is like the mental ninja stuff, this is way over my head. But every time, I mean, I get it, doing it is a whole other thing. Every time that thought would come into his mind, he would change the channel and he would attend his mind to the scripture that he'd put to memorization in his heart. It was used as a handbook by monks in the desert and every time the thought would come, they would just change the channel. So imagine it's almost like your consciousness is a, it's cable TV and it's all over the place and there's beautiful thoughts in there and there's nature poetry and there's violence and anger and fear and there's a little bit of history that, and then there's lies and there's conspiracy, all of that stuff's in your consciousness. The tragedy is we don't, there's no off switch. Well, gosh, I would love an off switch. It'd be amazing. There's not even sleep as an off switch. But we do have a remote. We can't turn it off, but we can change the channel. When something comes in, and this is not what I want in my feed, we can, we can turn it, we can change, we can replace our thoughts. Now, one word for this side of the practice, for the renewal of the mind, what we do think about is this Christian word, meditation. Now, again, meditation means different things to different Christians at different places and times. Meditation in the Hebrew and Christian tradition is very different from meditation in other Eastern spiritualities. Uh, Jesus was actually from the East, but in other Eastern spiritualities like Buddhism or the New Age or the kind of authentic self-movement of our city. This is an oversimplification, and so forgive me, I just don't have the time to nuance all of this out. But as a general rule, med meditation of the kind that we see in Joshua 1 or Psalm 1 or Philippians 4 is about filling your mind, whereas meditation in most of Buddhism is about emptying your mind. It's about focusing your mind on, in Philippians language, whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, and ultimately on the beauty of the Trinity itself. It's about what you put into your consciousness. There are all sorts of very pragmatic ways to do this in your discipleship. Again, let me just offer you a few very kind of steps, stepping stones. Meditation on scripture. I hope you have this. I hope you have it close by. I hope it's with you a lot. 
I hope it's on your bedside table or your desk. I hope that you're in this, not even on a regular basis, on a daily basis. Just reading scripture, whether large swaths at once, I love that, or slowly and prayerfully, a paragraph or a story or a phrase, just turning it over and over in your mind, getting it into you, or study. I spent a few hours this week on my runs listening to the Bible Project podcast, or sitting in a Bible class, or hearing a teaching, or memorization. Oh, let me just, just minor, minor rabbit trail. We have lost something so important. It ended in my generation where people don't memorize scripture anymore. Mostly not because people are evil, just because we've been Googleized. And so we don't memorize much of anything anymore because we don't feel the need when you can just Google it and it's in your pocket. But that is a functional use of knowledge, not a formational use. We memorize scripture not just to have the right answers for some theology test, but to have the right mind, to curate our consciousness. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would bring to remembrance all that he said, but for that to happen, whatever it is he said has to first be in there. For the Holy Spirit to bring our mind back to, as we're driving or grocery shopping or exercising or whatever, when we don't have our Bible open in front of us. So, meditation on scripture. In particular, meditation on the gospels, long history in, our, in the way of Jesus of just thoughtful, like deep thought and imaginative reading of gospel stories where you take a story and you just put your whole senses into it and you imagine Jesus there and you imagine yourself as one of the characters in the story, rich tradition of that for people, in particular with a more imaginative mind. Meditation on spiritual literature or theology, what some would call spiritual reading. So this is reading books about the spiritual life, whether it's by Tyler or by Henry Nouwen or Thomas Kelly or Evelyn Underhill or older writers like St. Teresa or St. John or Meister Eckhart, or just reading deep, rich, beautiful theology and learning to think godly, godlike about God. Meditation on creation, or what, of course, most call nature now. Just walking, ah, one of the highlights of my week was two walks I got to go on in Forest Park. I don't miss the rain, but I do miss the trees. I left the rain behind, and I left the trees behind too. So sad, but it was so beautiful. You can go walking in Forest Park. You can go to Mount Hood or up the gorge. You can go over to the beach early in the morning. Just take your Bible, leave your phone at home, and go over to Haystack Rock and just walk with God and his creation and pay attention I believe that one of the most common and almost never talked about of all of the spiritual disciplines of Jesus is walking in creation. A spiritual discipline is any habit you can find in the life of Jesus that is an opening for you to God. And we read so many stories of him walking and hiking and mountain climbing out in the wilderness to the point there's a Canadian writer, Mark Buchanan, who has this book called God Walk, and he makes the point that walking with God is not only a metaphor, it is what he calls a physical discipline from the Christian way. You literally go walking with God. Finally, medit is meditation on God himself in prayer, or what is normally called contemplative prayer where you just direct the gaze of your inner heart. I, I just, words start to fail you really fast once you get to this type of prayer. You direct the gaze of your heart, of your inner woman or man, on the beauty of the Trinity, not without, but somehow by Christ within you. 
And whether utilizing your breath or a prayer word like Jesus or Father or love or what the Catholic contemplative writer Thomas Kelly calls a sacred image. Um, I find that one the most helpful. I'm a very visual person. I have this memory of a trip we went on, uh, this beautiful mountain range I was in and just of this cloud kind of pouring over the side and the sun just coming through the clouds. It's this beautiful memory. And I just, I know that God is not sun coming through a cloud, but I feel like that's such a good picture of who God is. Many of the contemplatives have called God the bright abyss or the luminous darkness. God is like light pouring through a cloud. So I'll often just begin my day by just have that in my mind. I know that's not God, but somehow there's an opening in me to look at God. And then this is as simple as turning your mind to God all through the day, giving to him your attention and more your affection, your surrender to love. Here's the Quaker philosopher Thomas Kelly. By quiet, persistent practice in the turning of all of our being, day and night, in prayer and inward worship and surrender toward him who calls in the deep of our souls, mental habits of inward orientation must be established. It's the discipline piece. An inner secret turning to God can be made fairly steady after weeks and months and years of practice and lapses and failures and returns. You can do this. Now, please hear me, this is not a list of to-dos. This is just a list of ideas for you to consider. You may or may not just see one that you're drawn to. Oh, I love walking, or I love the intellectual study of ancient Christian texts, or I love just prayerfully sitting by a candle in the morning and just breathing in God's presence, whatever. Just follow the desire of your heart and trust that it may be the spirit at work in your heart. And remember, you're already doing all of this. This is not more extra stuff on top of your already over busy life. You're already reading, you're already thinking, you're already watching, you're already spending 24 hours a day doing something. This is just about repurposing what you already do with the intentionality of one whose deepest desire is to follow under Jesus and become like him. To end, let me clarify two very simple things. One, I do not want you to walk away with the impression that my mind is this pure, perfectly kind of curated garden of delight. <laughs> Holy cow, it's a great thing you can't see inside my mind. You would all run out the door as fast as possible. I've been on the road the last two weeks in a row, on the road, whatever, I've been traveling. What does that even sound like? I've been traveling for the last few weeks and I was just laughing a few days ago as I was writing this teaching because I find it so hard to focus in general but especially when I'm like outside of my home and kind of my daily rhythms and my rituals and how I pray. I find this idea of watchfulness and meditation in particular of contemplation way easier to teach on, really fun to teach on, so hard to do. It's so hard to do. My mind is actually very chaotic um, I'm working with a psychiatrist right now because of some stuff, and I, he just diagnosed me with like a very rare form of anxiety-based ADHD. I was like, no, not, not me. What, what was that thing? You uh, don't any, oh man. So I, I am not here to say that I am some modern day monk. When I sit down to pray, most of the time my mind is like a ping pong table, you know, or just like a TV on the fritz. 
And it is just, but there are these moments. Not even every day, honestly. But there are moments when I come to stillness before God and the quiet. Fleeting moments when all of a sudden I look and there he is, always looking at me in love. And it might be a few minutes, it might be a few seconds, but every time it is the best moment of my day. And so my, hopefully you have a way more orderly mind than I do. I, my journey has very much been three steps forward, two and a half steps back, and then a wrong turn. <laughs> What's the Thomas Keating line? The spiritual journey is punctuated by more failures than successes. So much truth in that, spiritual realism. But, but, those moments are the best moments. And if a few seconds can become a few more seconds, can become a few minutes, can become the north star of your mind, you and I have the chance at the mind of Christ. Can you imagine walking through the world with a brain and a mind that sees the world the way Jesus sees the world? That sees each person the way Jesus sees that person? Sees each ideology, each idea, each thing with his wisdom, compassion, fierce courage, his strength, his calm? Can you imagine if your mind, your garden was like his mind? Second thing I wanna say one final time is whether you ascribe to neuroscience or ancient Christian spirituality and desert fathers and mothers, it's all saying one thing in unison, you can use your mind to change your brain. Call it Hebb's Law or neuroplasticity or the renewal of the mind. You can partner with the spirit of Jesus to heal and strengthen and calm and renew your consciousness. We have the ability and with it the responsibility to curate our consciousness, to direct our mind to Jesus. This is wildly unpopular to say, but we are not passive victims of our thought life, but active agents in the gardening of our mind. Now we do not get a blank slate, we get a garden. We inherited a garden. And it is the soil it is, and it's where it comes from, and it has things that have been sown into it that are toxic and destructive long before we could even figure out what was happening to us in our earliest years. But still, we get a garden. We still have a say in what it does or does not become. We have the ability and responsibility to choose what we allow to find a home in our mind, Jesus and his word or something or someone else. And with it, we have the opportunity to open the deepest part of ourself to the beauty and presence and goodness, the glory of Christ. Your mind and mine, it was made by God and it was made for God, made to live in, remain in, abide in God. It was made as the portal to the innermost depth of your being, to open the deepest part of you are to the love and the presence of the Trinity who is not up there in outer space, but as Augustine said, is deeper in you than you are into yourself. And the more we turn our mind to God, to his beauty, his person in Christ, his gospel, his word, his truth, the more we will become like God because what you think is who you are.